I've been in this office too long. I've been here too long. I've just been in this building. <laughs> Let's just roll straight in off that, because this is a weird office. Welcome to Probably Science on the Road. <laughs> we are in the UCL Department of Cognitive Neuroscience. I'm Matt Kirshen, joined by guest host and friend of the show, Nick Doody. Hello. And, yeah, we're on the road. And so I've stolen briefly some time out of Professor Sophie Scott's busy day. Uh, hey Sophie, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, thank you, fine. Um, yeah, we we met at numerous... We, you Obviously, you do real proper science, but also you sometimes <laughs> show up at various um, public engagement things, and at some of those they occasionally have comedy on as well, so our paths have crossed numerous times. But what is it you actually do when you're being a real grown-up scientist? <laughs> I'm very interested in how we're doing exactly what we're doing now. So what I want to understand is how our brains uh, both control our voices and what we sound like, so why we sound the way we do, and how that can change and how that can go wrong. And I'm also interested in how we're dealing with that information when we hear other people's voices. So I'm interested in what we get out of voices and how we put that together into like a, a sort of understanding or many different sorts of understandings of what's going on. By, by what we get out of voices, do you mean um, as in the tone rather than the linguistic content? Well, I'm interested in this linguistic content, and historically that's what psychology's looked at. We've, you know, somebody's opened their mouth and started talking, and we've assumed that the important thing there was the words, and right. it is really important. <clears throat> but... I'm really sorry. And, and that's, the, uh, yeah, sorry. That, that's the importance alarm. That's You'll be hearing that throughout the, uh, throughout the episode. Yes. Um, so, but as soon as someone starts talking, so if you couldn't see me, you could only hear me, you could have a good shot at my age, my socioeconomic status, my geographical origins. You can just about hear I'm originally from the north of England, and if, as soon as I'm around someone with a slightly northern accent, that becomes much more pronounced. You can tell if I was ill, you can tell I was in a bad mood. Um, all of that is continuously part of our voices, and it's even sort of quite emotional. So we talk, we talk in a way that kind of reflects how we'd like to be seen. Right. You, you can change your voice, and we do change your voice. So when I've been on the phone to my mum, I talk like her for about half an hour, and you know, love my mum. I don't really want to talk like her, but I, I, I don't even mean to do it. My partner can tell when I've been on the phone, <laughs> right? Because I've, I've changed completely. I take it all over there. I can't be with her. My life doesn't resemble hers. She's not in prison or anything. She just lives abroad. But I can move my voice to sort of show our relationship, and I do. So you do, and also there's a, you know, there's even more kind of generally aspirational. We'll talk in a way that is sort of, you know, like people who. You know, very much people who maintain marked regional accents, even if they're not living where they came from, where they got that accent. Part of that is actually that's part of who they'd like to be. You know, a, they, it's signalling yeah. as much as it, not adapting. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So when you then move to a different region and you slowly absorb their accent, is there was there sort of an evolutionary reason for that? Is that you're sort of culturally you're becoming more of that tribe you're yeah you're you're becoming you're, you're showing you're starting to show your affiliation shifting to that group of people you're you're marking affiliation with that or choosing not to if you absolutely don't change yeah. well that is very hard it's very hard not to pick up other people's voices because I, I yeah I, I live in America now and to the Americans I'm very British but then when I come home you like I mean, Nick will always notice either like turns of phrase and slight slight consonant sounds well I find you're a heavy American accent almost impenetrable at this stage <laughs> um, but uh, luckily I have a background in languages so I'm still, I'm still able to pass the sort of 
<laughs> but I, 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 I've ended up with this odd hybrid, particularly like words like I, I don't, I don't say water or butter. I now end up saying water and butter, which is not how Americans say it either. It's, it's this strange middle ground between the two. Yeah. If I can just translate for Sophie. Uh, Matt says that uh, since coming back from the States, he, you probably picked up a few words. He said um, water and then another word that sounded a bit like water but wrong. Um, yeah, it, it, clearly. And the thing I remember from being in the States was sometimes you just change the way you say things because otherwise you have to say them again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, tomato. I just give in and start saying tomato because there's just no point. Yeah. People go, what What on earth are you saying? What is going yeah. on here? You, you sound weirdly <laughs> stubborn sticking with... Yeah. <laughs> I want a tomato and yeah, basil. Tomato and basil, that's the end of all kind of ordering. <laughs> I still happiness. refuse to say herbs. It's, it's, it's too it's too weirdly hard and feels pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, yeah, it sounds like you're putting on a French accent, but in an American accent. <laughs> I had my eyes tested once in uh, in Virginia um, for uh, contact lenses. It sounds like the beginning of a weird blues song. <laughs> <laughs> I had my eyes tested twice. And, 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 and the... the the bit I was dreading was getting up to the letter Z. Because I'm not going to say Z. Yeah. And he just looks at me like, this isn't an I problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that one is the final alphabet letter. Yeah, so I sort of went, sorry, I'm not from here, that's why I said Z. He went, oh, that's why you went French. <laughs> no. French is just what uh, American Southern people call wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but... So you've also done, as well as just language tone, you do a lot of stuff, which I think is sort of pertinent to a comedy science podcast. You, you do a lot of investigation of laughter, and yeah. is it is your is your is your field of study what makes people laugh, or how do they respond to laughter? So I'm interested primarily in in laughter as a vocalization. So I I don't have people do draw theories about that's like a scientific basis to humour. Um, I I don't do that. I'm talking about the the behaviour of laughing, and I came to that entirely because one of the things we do with our voices is when we're in more extreme emotional states, we don't say that's funny. We start laughing, or if we're scared, we don't go I am scared. We start screaming, um, and these are really weird vocal behaviours. They're very um, primitive. They're very we share them with other mammals. They're more like animal calls than they are like speech. So you don't do any of the fine movements you're doing all the time when you're talking, when you start screaming. It's all happening sort of your ribcage and your uh, voice box. And I only started looking at laughter because I'd been doing this for a few years. And what we always did, we worked with what are called the basic emotions, and that's fear, anger, disgust, surprise, happiness, sadness. And... It just seemed really odd to me. That so the, on, is each of them matched to a dwarf? You missed out Doc, but that's... Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and hooray to you, the, birth, <laughs> the birthday emotion. <laughs> the, the, they're called this because they, they're universally found in all human cultures. They seem to have different brain systems associated with them, and you don't only find them in humans. Other animals do them too. So they're, they're, you know, if something's gone wrong, if a patient can no longer recognise the frightened face, for example, it suggests there is something has changed in their brain because everybody can do that. Sorry. Everybody can do that. So um, I've been working with this. I've been working on vocal versions of these for years, and I just got really bothered that they were all so negative. Out of all six, there's only one that's positive, and that's happiness. 
And I just thought it. Yeah, what well, we like, 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 surprise, surprise, I suppose, is neutral, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. No surprise. In fact, arguably, you probably could, shouldn't cause surprise and emotion because it's something you do briefly before going off into something that's right, more okay, valenced. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's exactly that. Then, then you've got the rest are really firmly negative anger, disgust, sadness, uh, fear. There's, there's nothing positive to be found there. Like on a day to day basis, I don't often feel that angry or that disgusted you know so I feel like I'm feeling emotions what what's going on so I just went back to the literature and it turns out the guy who'd done all this original work looking at the basic emotions from the face had more recently said there probably are more positive emotions out there but um they're more likely to be they might all share a smile so on a photo they all look yeah. the same or same-ish but um that is, you maybe convey them with with movements or with body, you know, so with voices. And I thought, great, I do voices. So I started looking at them, and he'd suggested um, what he called amusement, triumph, uh, relief, sexual, no, not sexual, sensual pleasure, and contentment. So I started testing this, and I thought this is one of those ones where you end up losing your job. Um, you know, sensual stimuli. Um, but actually, sensual pleasure and contentment don't. They're not. They're not different. They're you know, basically feeling nice, right? And it could be sexually or just because you're getting to put your feet up at the end of the day. Feeling nice is feeling nice, and that does seem to be one of them. And then you've got sort of feeling of delight and sort of joy because something good has happened, like your football team scored a goal or you've won a prize, and that's triumph. And then laugh and then relief. You know, kind of finding something you thought you'd lost. That whew sort of feeling. Um, and then laughter, and as soon as we started looking at the laughter, or any of these, the laughter just pulled away and started looking, for example, much more like a basic emotion than the other positive emotions. So if you go to the northern Namibia, we were working with the Himba there, and they've got a completely unwesternized lifestyle. They're not contaminated by our culture. And if you, you know, the negative emotions, fear, anger, disgust, sadness, yeah. play them Westerners producing those sounds, they recognise them absolutely. And if you ask them to make right. it, they, they make sounds that are very similar. It's recognised in both directions. But the only positive emotion, which is recognised rather in both directions, the English recognised the hymn, the hymn recognised the English, was laughter. It's just exactly the same. So, and you say, well, you know, maybe it should be. We shouldn't be surprised because we're not the only animals that laugh. You know, it's got this. Kind so of it's something that's there. really fundamental. Yeah, it's fundamental probably to mammals. The, th- the thing that struck me when you were listing some of the other, the negative ones even, was that you can get to laughter incredibly quickly from those. Because, mm. like, comedy can start from a place of disgust or can start... Yeah, you know what I mean. You well, can, also, you can I was thinking, get to laugh when you sort of said they're all oh, negative. How gross is that? Yeah. Nah, and then everybody laughs. Yeah. I guess because you don't actually have to eat it. Maybe, yeah. it's, maybe it's the removal or the ma- making safe. And, the, but, and then also, sort of a lot of those, a lot of those negative things are things that that humans will seek out. We'll watch a horror film yeah. or we'll listen yeah. to a sad piece of music. Yeah, and we will enjoy that process. Like we people like to watch a weepy film. Yeah, or. And people quite enjoy getting disgusted. I mean, most of the narration around uh, racism tends to form contemptuous disgust. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but people actually don't all dislike it, don't experience right. it as a... Yeah, you, know, you sort of do move to you move towards that. It is almost a sort of bonding yeah, experience yeah. to share in your contempt for something. Yeah, yeah. And that seems to be a thing that humans do. We're very, very complicated animals. We've got massive brains, very, very complex interactions, and... Uh, for a dog, probably fear is fear. For humans, fear is fear, but also fear can be quite fun if you're on a roller coaster and you kind of yeah. know probably this isn't going to come off the rails. Um, so is that, is that the secret almost, to know that, know that there's an out? Like you're watching a horror film and it does scare you, but you also know, 
that's inside, that's yeah. behind the screen. That yeah. axe murderer isn't really going to get you. You can enjoy feeling scared, but actually, exactly, you're some, you're some sense removed from it. Humans seem to be able to deal with the idea of something going on rather than believing it's happening in front of them. Do, do people ever have the vocal responses to these emotions wrong? Is that can you be neurological damage so so that you you know you weep when you're surprised or you laugh when you're afraid or as far as I know it that doesn't happen it's more when you find the I, I can't rule it out because you can never say it could never happen but yeah. the patients that we encounter who have the problems they seem to have more of a problem with that particular emotion and all of its expressions can be misunderstood by them. And they don't produce them in a, in a sort of appropriate way. So, so like the whole module. Yeah, and then everything kind of coming from a, that. So I had a I worked with a guy once um, who had a, we were working with patients who had damage to the amygdala and these these two little areas in the middle of the temporal lobes just above your ear, old bit of the brain. They do lots of complicated stuff. One of the things they do they're involved in fear and damage to it gives you a real problem recognizing fear. Um, and you don't seem to, as far as we can determine, actually experience fear in quite the same way if you have damage there. So he'd been out, and he got—he was really kind of active. He was out on his bike, and he saw an elderly lady, listen lower stuff, he saw an elderly lady nearly get knocked over by a car. He said she was furious, she was absolutely furious. So he went over to her and said to her, calm down, don't worry, that young man didn't know what he was doing. Don't worry, he, don't be cross with him. And she burst into tears because she wasn't. Right. angry she was scared and he just completely misread it he got that there was an emotion going on and hadn't even the context of somebody being nearly hit by a car wasn't enough to signal to him this is fear what's happening here right. is fear. right um and that and it's quite it can be quite extraordinary how off that emotion can be because he's seen everything should be telling you you think well semantically wouldn't you understand that but no he, he was completely misreading a facial expression and so his response to fear was different, but it seemed to be partly because he didn't seem to get scared anymore. We can't, obviously, within the boundaries of ethics, you can't yes. really terrify people. <laughs> the people Time tried. for him to meet Professor Horrific. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do run into ethics quite quickly in this area. but um, So it's hard to say, but as far as I know, what you don't see is something like a mismatch between the emotional recognition and the expression or what you can do is that the mismatch is there because they've misunderstood the emotion. Right. It's not that it's come become disengaged or switched. Okay. So what what do you do in your experiments with laughter? Like what what are the because you are an experimentalist as well as I am. Yes. Rather than all this hard theory that you're getting. <laughs> um, so I'm very interested. I mean, you you know, there's there's a phrase isn't there? Ask a man with a hammer to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I've got a brain scanner, so what I tend right. to say is, <laughs> what happens in your brain when you experience this? So one of the things we do look at is we look at people listening to stimuli like laughs and cries, and we have them. It's harder to do production. We've been doing more production stuff with the voice. So we're trying to get towards looking at some of this more authentic aspects of emotion in the voice when you're actually producing it. We also do um, we do cross-cultural studies, we do lots of behavioural studies. We just did a really big study at the Science Museum testing like, how hundreds and hundreds of people process or perceive laughter uh, and sort of decide if laughter sounds real or posed, because that, that's got quite an interesting developmental span to it. You're not, you can't really do that when you're a child. You just get better and better. It's because um, it's, it's what, quite... Fake, faking laughter? Understanding other people are faking. Ah, OK. Because yeah. it's one of the hardest things to do, I guess... Uh, it's it's really hard to make yourself laugh. Okay? I think it's much yeah. easier 
like it's one of the hardest things I think for an actor to yeah. convincingly laugh at something. Yeah, I think that's because it's almost totally a social behaviour. You're thirty times more likely to laugh if there is somebody else with you than if you're on your own. It's completely primed by the presence of other people. Oh, which is which is something comedians are very aware. Yeah, like we're, yeah. we're very aware that there's a the difference between a well set up and a poorly set up comedy club. And the things that make comedy clubs good generally are packing people in tight, yeah. putting them close to the stage, and having a low ceiling. Yeah. Because all of those make the audience's experience far more intimate yeah. and I think far more aware of everyone around them. And they're safe. They kind of feel like they're yeah. not being exposed. On oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing is you, you really want the audience to be to feel like they're not lit, to feel mm. like they're in the dark and the stage is the... Is the bright point, and and the the other people that they can see are part of the same group that they're in. Yeah, that's another thing that sometimes people do wrong. This and, and and this these people will have them sitting that that yeah. bit away from the others, and or uh, invariably, I find when you have a room set up like that, the people who are in the slightly separate part have yeah. a separate. Yeah, they laugh kind of, less. They laugh. their yeah. experience of the gig is more removed. They feel like oh. they're watching an audience watch a gig. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. weird how just how big a difference that is because you sort. Of, Two comedy clubs in the same town, so presumably drawing from the same population, yeah. will have such a different response to the same material, to the same yeah. jokes. And the only real... The, there are a couple of other variables, maybe how they're treated on the way in and how, they're, how the night is sold to them, but the biggest difference is just how they are physically placed in relation to each other. Yeah. Yeah, I can believe that. And probably the reason that the Queen seems to have a shitty sense of humour is she's always in a box. She can never really <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> but it's also the thing, that that experience when people people often complain with mainstream sitcoms about canned laughter, which is sort of bullshit. There isn't really such a thing as canned. Yeah. Um, but they go like, no one's laughing that much at these jokes, but they are. People yeah. really are laughing that much because they're in a studio audience. They've been whipped up into a frenzy by a warm up uh, yeah. comedian. And and they're in this social situation, whereas yeah. you're on your couch with you and maybe one other person. Yeah, and I, th- I think, um, I suspect that a lot of that response is also, if you, if you like the humour, you don't notice it as much. I think it's sometimes people use it, that what they're saying is, I didn't enjoy that. Yes. And it was the fault yeah. of that stupid laugh. Well, there was people laughing at that thing that wasn't funny. And whereas when you're watching something you enjoy, you don't actually get, you know, it's not as, it's not as much of a thing. Right. Um, I'm trying to think the best way of describing it. My son really enjoys um, really old Tony Hancock radio programmes. And one of the things that I got interested in that is how funny a lot of it still is. And also the audience laugh sounds almost exactly the same, although it's 60 years old. You could have just That's interesting because I sometimes notice sort of an audience that goes, this feels like a 1950s laughter. It, do, it does yeah. feel the sort of older tone, but I think Maybe, that's just yeah. how it's mic'd and how yeah, it's... I, I would have thought it's probably the equipment yeah. Yeah, more I think, than yeah. the yeah. And the setup yeah. of the room. Yeah, I suspect so. And I just wonder, if I didn't find that funny, would I find it less nice to listen yeah. to? Do you know what I mean? I, kind of, I find well, it people like, warm. People get very it's... angry on a level that they almost... They don't with any other art form. They get yeah. really furious at comedy they didn't enjoy. Yeah. At, uh, and it's like... a. The the anger someone gets for say, a comedian bombing on stage, like the fury at this idea that someone's attempted to entertain them and it's yeah. missed the mark. Yeah, and it I, I guess from what you're saying, because because it's such a an innate and sort of almost lower level, basic level response, it is almost saying you are of a different tribe. You are of. I think it is. I think that's it. I think it's in a because at its heart, in the wild, 
where you find laughter is essentially in conversation because that's when what people do when they are in group you know when they're with someone else they'll start talking to them yeah. and actually that's where you find most laughter so although if you ask people when do you laugh they'll talk about jokes and comedy if you actually watch them most of the laughter just statistically most of the laughter is happening in conversation and then it's hardly ever at jokes people are laughing at, to show they understand or they agree or they know each other or they like each other or they love each other and or they're, they're nervous nervous laughter is well, a thing well that can still be can we come back to nervous laughter because it's sure. really interesting but so they, if, you, if you kind of Obviously, there's lots of degrees to that. If you like someone and you are enjoying talking to them, chances are you won't even notice how much you've been laughing. If you don't like him, you start noticing him. Well, they don't like him from me. But, um, <laughs> it's, so it's got a... You almost forget it. You just don't remember. It's why they don't talk about it when you ask them about their laughter. It's, it's such a basic aspect of interaction. But I think what that means, even if you go into a comedy environment, and the people like to sort of think they laugh... People who aren't comedians, people who are performing, you know, going to see comedy, they, they'll give you lots of abstract and sort of conceptual reasons about why someone's funny and what they right. like about them. But very often, one of the primary <coughs> things they're reacting to is still affiliative. Like, I like him or her. I think that he or yeah. she could be my friend and I feel like I know them. You must get this all the time. People actually behave like they do actually know you. I did it to you outside. I've seen you on stage. Surely you noticed me. I was in the audience. <laughs> and um, it's really, it is really striking. But I did, because you always yeah. wear that top hat. <laughs> <laughs> With the arrow pointing yeah. yeah. And the fMRI scanner is huge. <laughs> yes. And noisy. They're very noisy, those yeah. fMRIs. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, so I th- and I think you never really lose that there's always that kind of that's i think there's a social an aspect of all the social stuff that goes into the contracts that you have you know i mean like the unspoken stuff that goes on when you're interacting with somebody you take over into a comedy situation i suspect it's like a comedian it's it's like a weird conversation where only one person talks but the audience kind of feel like they're in that conversation so they do things they laugh and they respond but they're not and hopefully all other things being equal they're shouting out and as a result there is that sort of thing where people often think they could do comedy mm. and the reason they give for what, why they couldn't do it is wrong. Like, oh, I couldn't do comedy because I don't like public speaking or anything. I'm not... You go, no, you couldn't do it because it, what we do is actually a very artificial thing. We give the illusion of a so- social discourse and nearly everyone has made their friends laugh in conversation or even made mm. them their friends laugh in a wedding speech which is still talking about a very personal thing. Yeah. But it's very yeah. different in stand-up to... Talk to a room full of strangers who expect to be made to laugh several times a minute. Yeah. That's a very artificial and very fake thing that, we, that if you get it right, has the illusion of a very natural and very normal thing. Yeah. Which is why, out of that context, almost the most annoying thing you can say to a stand-up comic is, Oh, go on then. Yeah. yeah. Do it now with me. Yeah. <laughs> Before. Do your joke. Yeah. yeah. No, because... It's, it's, it's not happening now. No. <laughs> it's like a ballerina. Come yeah. on then, jump in the air. Yeah. <laughs> deliver, me, deliver me some milk now. Yes. Yeah, but it is. A, <laughs> but, it milk something. <laughs> but it is so much yeah. harder to. You do feel very prickish when you say it because that is a. It is because you go. Well, I'll tell you a joke. Why won't you? Yeah. Whose job it is to tell jokes? Yeah, yeah. Tell me a joke. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. Um, but it, it is. It's a very weirdly different artificial. Um, artificial thing that has the illusion of the most normal thing, the most natural thing. I think it does, and I, I, it's one of the things I'd really like to, if I could just have unlimited amounts of money and I could really bother like professional yeah. comedians, I would really like to uh, get my hands on audiences, because 
There, for example, there's Which certain you things... can in some clubs, but... <laughs> no, they don't always let you kind of wire them up for some reason, you know. Uh, touchy about it. So if you, what we started doing as soon as we started talking together, and we don't agree to do it, and it's just part of what you have to do to have a conversation, we will started to breathe together. We'll have started to speak at the same rate. Yeah. We'll have started to bring the pitches of our voices, although you've got your men with very different voices to me. You'll have, we, are, we will have slight, started to align all sorts of stuff about how we're talking. And that makes conversation possible because the turn-taking conversation is so quick and people hardly ever talk over each other, interrupt each other and aren't great long gaps. And it's argued that to do this, you have to sort of align all the motor stuff and get it running together. And then you talk on top and you remember the talking. You don't remember. You don't even notice well, all that other work you're doing. Yeah. I know people, sort of NLP people, they will learn to do like body mi- mirroring yeah. consciously as um, a thing. Maybe, maybe Matching happens. and pacing, that stuff. Yeah, is a, yeah. Is a thing that pe- like some people make a conscious effort to learn how to do more uh, inten- intentionally. Yeah. Like mirror body language and like, you'll touch your hair right now, I'll touch yeah. my hair at the same time. <laughs> but the, I think the breathing one's interesting because it's one of the things you don't really notice yourself doing, let alone other people, but we will have immediately done it. It's, it's unbelievably finely tuned, that coordinated. No, yeah, you, you I, I often interrupt people and talk over that, and I, I didn't realise what this was until I went out for drinks with my my youngest brother, who was very sharp. I, I, I'm one of seven brothers and sisters, and my granny lived with us as well. So a typical dinner conversation was ten people. Yeah. And my yeah. little brother just said, "I don't, I can't believe my friends still put up with me. I just interrupt people." And I'm sort of where I'm doing it, but I don't expect them to have a problem with it. And it's only when people object. And I'm like, oh, God, I do that all the time. I physically am restraining myself from just butting in. Because yeah. you grew up in such a competitive conversational environment. Yeah, where it was fine for everybody. Yeah. And you could still hear what they were saying while you were still sort yeah. of taking the baton of conversation. Whereas for some people, especially if they're used to much smaller social groups, it's sort of a bit overwhelming when people do that. And yeah. You're not letting them finish, basically. There's um, some quite interesting work showing that if you... And it does work if you look at social groups. If two people start talking, they can have a conversation. Third person joins them, you can have that conversation. Fourth, you're OK. Fifth, you're OK. Sixth person joins, you'll get two conversations. Right. And the thing that seems to be that... Well, you, you, can talk, you can talk to loads of people. You can have... Multi, if you disengage, you'll get people's behaviour on Twitter. They're going to be having conversations everywhere. They, as soon as you remove all this physical nonsense of having to talk to each other, it's much easier to have multiple right. streams of conversation. It's the business of organising who goes next that gets really hard when you go above five people, exactly like you describe. So it's got That's these weird constraints in the wild. And what I'd be really interested in is how much of that kind of like coordination is actually happening when you're on stage. Are you sort of actually entraining the audience to you? Into, you know, do they start breathing with you? Do that, is that how you're, you're coordinating you're the laughter? You're aware attention, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, and and you, you do start to another bit of the room. Or... You start to think of them, well, certainly at the better gigs, and also the worst. It's almost <laughs> like the very good and the very bad gigs are the ones where the audience really starts to start to behave as one group, as one amorphous, mm. co- as a blob rather than a rather than individuals. And that's mm. something I think you definitely start to feel that with better gigs, you they they start off as patches of people, yeah. like oh, there's there's that work party, there's that couple, there's the, that group of friends, and they they coalesce to an yeah. extent into it, which I think is why even more you notice the sort of the outliers, the ones who don't yeah naturally form into that group either because they're not into the show or they're tired or they're drunk or whatever, 
you start to notice the one that one guy who isn't who's responding at a different pace, either laughing more than the others, or when they're not laughing, or laughing less than the others. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, I would really like to know if that's you know is that in train is that in training actually having a physical effect? Are they breathing with you? Is that how? Because they time. The laughter is very tightly coordinated. And as, as it is in conversation, people in conversation laugh at the ends of sentences, even if they're having a sign yeah. language conversation, when in theory you could laugh all the way through. They don't, they laugh at the end. Oh, that's amazing. And is that because there's a cognitive load or something? What's, what, even? It seems to be because it's almost, well, probably, practically... Uh, the brain areas that you're using for talking are different from the stuff that's driving laughing. And you notice if somebody starts to get overwhelmed with laughter and they have to, they're trying to keep talking, yeah. they will in the end stop. You can't, right. laughter will stop you. So it's probably easiest just to keep it separate. But it's even been argued that, because if you watch people laughing and then they all breathe in together and then carry on talking. So you may even be resetting that kind of, the breathing with how you're using the laughing. It's really interesting. And is that is that same kind of coordination? Although they're not talking in this, they are interacting with you. They're laughing. If they really like a joke, they'll clap. Or even in America, they'll cheer. You know this. I mean, and, you know, it's it's a, it is quite a nuanced interaction. If they don't like a joke, they'll still show. They sometimes, depending where they're going with you, they might make some other sort of yeah. noise. Or they'll so make. So, sometimes they make like oohs or groans, yeah, which ooh, are, yeah. Which is sometimes yeah. if you're particularly if you're a sort of a one-liner comic who does maybe cheesier jokes. If so, if an audience gets into the routine of groaning at a at a pun rather than laughing, it's very hard to break them out of that. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, that sort of changes the way those jokes are perceived. Yeah. Uh, Gary Delaney had um, if listeners don't know Gary Delaney, he's, he's uh, an extremely funny comic, but he does one-liners and lots of wordplay and lots of wordplay, lots of puns, like really, really good ones. Um, but I think it was Michael Legg told me a story. He he went to. Do you remember the gig in? Berlin, Blau Montag. Oh yes, I did so that it's, one. it's a German audience, but they would have a British stand-up comic on. Yeah, and it wasn't the the rest of the bill wasn't just comedians. It was a it was a variety show. They'd have some yeah, acrobats I, and singers yeah. and and German comedy show, comedy acts. Yeah, and I, then I, they I, I did a, it after two guys on BMXs who did stunts. It was that sort of show. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, Michael went and uh, you know he's talking to the guys backstage, and obviously they they all speak very good English and they're very friendly and. Uh, he goes, so who else have you had here? And uh, they went, well, we had Gary Delaney, but it wasn't so good. Which is quite a surprising thing to hear, because Gary's yeah. hilarious. And he went, well, what, what happened? And he went, well, he just said everything twice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, if you're sort of wordplay. <laughs> yeah, it's just... So they've sort of understood that he's saying the same thing, but they haven't... The, the language isn't quite up to the level yeah. where yeah. their expectations have been pulled away from under them. He just says everything twice. <laughs> it does feel like technology might now enable you to do. Now I, I noticed you're wearing. I think that's a smartwatch of some sort. Yep. Um, that which and those monitor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those monitor. Those do have built-in uh, heartbeat and yeah. breathing monitors. So you, I wonder whether it might be possible to develop some kind of app that yeah. everyone. 50 people scattered around an audience all wearing iWatches or their Google yep. equivalent could um, could be sending data to a central computer and you could monitor what, whether their breathing rate is aligned. You could. And I, th- I think if you had um, something you could imagine, because you can get those like 
things that sit on your like a necklace that tells you you're getting email and stuff. If you if you had something you could wear here, and I'm pointing to my neck, I realise this is not <laughs> yeah. made for podcasts. But because you're breathing and you're laughing and you're talking, or with your rib cage, that's primarily like the engine for all the stuff you do with your voice. Yeah, and you use them very <laughs> use the rib cage very differently when you're doing all those things. If there was something very easy you could wear that was pick up on that, it would work beautifully. That it does really, feel yeah. like uh, yeah, listeners possible. to the show. I, yeah. That feels like a, if get in touch with Professor Sophie Scott and I, I spy a collaboration here. Yeah. That's, that's completely possible. I mean, we it just sounds like the Glastonbury Festival where Coldplay were on and they just handed out thousands yeah. of these wristband things that were electronic and would at a set point all light up colour yeah. and yeah. yeah, yeah. And this does seem like something that you know just with various little yeah. uh, like make any makers who are listening to this right now that feels very doable and people are and they are because they do tell you it is so much more useful to be able to measure what someone's doing rather than asking them so someone used um they, well i don't think it was watches but they were devices that were tracking where people were and who they bumped into uh, like in a university context and found that she could predict who was getting flu by their movements before oh, wow. they got actually symptomatic because their behaviour was changing. You know, wow. when you're getting flu and you have a couple of days of feeling, oh, oh yeah, quite. yeah, yeah. Uh, but that, that affects what you do. And it's doing it in a systematic enough way that you could actually, just just from knowing where somebody was going and who they saw, changes in that. Telling well, them they were getting we're Ill. literally months away from Amazon using this to <laughs> yes. have a, a drone just arriving, <laughs> perching on yeah. your shoulder, giving you flu shots. Well, there was a story. We, we, <laughs> I remember logging it away for an episode of, of this show and then we never got to it. But it was quite a recent story where I think Bing, uh, through its search analyses, had was able to predict when I can't remember which specific illness it was. So it was pancreatic cancer, wasn't it? That's it was right. Changes, it, was. Yeah. it was. It was a specific oh, wow. cancer, and like yeah. through their search terms, <clears throat> through sort of meta data analysis, um, large data, they actually were able to predict with a fair amount of confidence yeah. uh, through certain search terms whether s- someone was. At a higher risk of getting pancreatic cancer, yeah, or prostate. It was certainly a cancer. I think yeah. it was pancreatic. I think because it, uh, you, some some things give you very general symptoms, and I think you get some quite specific symptoms with pancreatic cancer. And that I guess they were very unclear about what the things they, those terms they were. didn't. Yeah, they didn't release what those terms were, presumably for a sort of ethical reason. They don't want yeah. people to panic. But there was also that famous case some years ago with I think it was Target or oh yeah, yeah. or, or Rite Aid. It was one. I think it was Target. It was Target where um where uh, a girl in her late teens through her loyalty card where they send vouchers off every so often suddenly got a whole lot of maternity stuff and the furious parents said, what the hell are you doing? And then a few months later were like, oh, she actually is pregnant. And and yeah. and there was no specific intent on Target's part. They just have this algorithm yeah. that through, again, through huge data analysis just just predicts what the thing, what the next thing is people are most likely to buy depending yeah. on given their previous habits. It was tissues or something, wasn't it? It was was just a series, it was a a specific combination of a few things that just made someone more probabilistically likely to be buying maternity stuff next. And there was no no value judgment on that. It was just completely um, thoughtless, in the literal sense, uh, computer program. But it just went, okay, well, if they bought this, then the next thing they'll probably buy is this. And and it just happened to be maternity stuff, and it correctly had predicted from her previous purchasing behaviour yeah. that she was that she was pregnant. Yeah, and it feels like that sort of thing with that. Like 
It is. There's, there was a thing just last week, wasn't there, saying um, Facebook advertises jobs that pay more highly to men than to women. And again, not through anybody wow. sitting down saying men will like these jobs more than women. Because the women don't, no one knows who else, what everybody else is seeing, so you don't know it's happening as an end user. Right. And it's just these it, extremely, you know, as you say, without thought algorithms, just going, well, and how you end up with whole services not being provided to areas where, where mostly black people live because that's just what well, the algorithms tell you we won't, we won't need those and so it doesn't happen right. and you know yeah, suddenly yeah. it's which then means presumably <laughs> if you are able to identify those patterns you then add something that makes yes. the program less random and less yeah or le- you sort of you can push it into a more equal and ethical yeah form yeah I suspect I think we might be at that point now. We want something to go, oh, sorry, no, we really didn't mean for that to happen. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, at the point when you'll go to someone's house and their robot butler is extra nice to you and you go, oh, for fuck's sake. It, it, it's overcompensating, isn't it? Because I shouldn't be allowed in. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are others. We talked years ago on the show about how um, Apple, with, its, uh, with, with the iPod's random button, had to make it less random. Mm. because yeah. a genuinely random shuffle function throws up patterns that humans perceive to be not random. Mm. Why did I just get three Oasis songs in a row when it's meant to be on shuffle? Well, that's yeah. actually because if you if you have a deck of cards and chuck it in the air, yeah. you do get these clumpings of patterns. So they actually yeah. have to sort of de-random it yeah. to make it appear more random. Yeah, It's like that game, it's really hard, the game where, you, it, where you're free non-association basically where someone says a thing and you have to say a thing that's nothing to do with that thing yeah and it, it's insanely hard yeah there's actually a neuropsychological test that was developed by one of my colleagues here to test um frontal lobe function uh because it's notoriously really really hard to come up with um come up with things that will actually tap into damage here because you tend to still your memory is intact and your language is probably still intact and very often people go back to work and then you sort of find their lives unravel and they make these really weird decisions and nothing's the same that it's very hard to quantify and what he found was exactly this if you give people sentences that uh, have a very you know the whole town came to hear the mayor and they tell people complete that with a word that doesn't fit people who've got intact brains they really struggle with and they'll start doing strategies like going oh looking around the room, set yeah, desk, yeah. chair, or describe, they'll, they'll, you can see them using strategies. People with frontal lobe function uh, who are very disinhibited, they're fine with it. A whole town came to hear the mayor fart through a megaphone, being one famous example of a completion. But indeed, that is probably unlikely. Right. You know, but, it, but you can see so it's actually how our brains work to be doing that, and you can, see, you can find patients who completely don't... That's simply not a problem for them anymore. So, <laughs> it, has, it has to be... So it has to be a thing that linguistically makes sense, but is very unlikely to happen. Or just doesn't fit, isn't sort of predictable. So, so, oh, okay. so yeah. would yeah. accept yeah. say yeah. mayor again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You would, that would be fine. You would or be okay I, I was thinking that. like Satsuma or something. Just... Yeah, that would also be fine. Yeah, people statistically struggle with it. So someone with that frontal lobe problem wouldn't be able to come up with anything that doesn't fit that sentence. They would, would, but they struggle. They fight. They, they, they can, they're not necessarily bad at it, but they are disproportionately good of finding things that don't fit. You can see people with intact brains because you, your, your, your desire yeah, is to yeah. complete. Your brain is always trying to complete things rather than, I'll tell you what would go fine here, hairdryer. You know, it's... Um, <laughs> oh, so, so hang on. So, so the person who... So a non-damaged brain actually struggles to find something that doesn't fit more than a damaged brain would. Yeah. In and this particular instance, if you're looking at somebody with frontal lobe damage and because the problem is then that applies to all their decisions they're making about their life. They'll... 
they'll go into business with someone right. they meet in the garage and you know and they'll you know the, the petrol station and you right. know it's uh, it's and they will make disastrous financial decisions so because disinhibition yeah yeah um, that's, that's interesting. I, I kind of want to come back quickly to the in-group, out-group mm. stuff with laughter, because some of the examples we've been giving, I suddenly think of it and go, when, when you were talking about a number of people all laughing, and you're, you know, they're getting on home famously, yeah. and I'm not laughing, and I yeah. almost went to that sort of sitcom thing of trying to get into the circle of people by going, ah, ha, ha, yeah. <laughs> <that>. yes, ha, <laughs> yeah. and using the laughter as a signalling, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're not in it, laughter's really exclusionary, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost the worst nightmare you can imagine is everybody else laughing except you. Or, or, or even worse, like them laughing at you yeah. is is many people's biggest fear. Genuinely, I think it's... Um, or social fear. So if you think of laughter as being primarily about social interactions and making and maintaining social bonds, and that seems to be like the entry level, main use for laughter... By definition, if you're making social bonds, somebody has to be excluded from that because otherwise it doesn't mean anything. So one of the things I think certainly in adulthood you're always trying to do with laughter is trying to understand it and you're trying to understand it with specific relevance to you. Like, am I included in it? Is it directed at me? All of this matters to you and your reaction to the laughter will completely vary depending on whether or not you perceive that as being something you're in or out from so I was on Ipswich railway station with my son a few years ago and my partner and we were traveling from Felixstowe and there were some teenagers really asking about on the train but you know what I you know I I don't really care I've been a teenager I lived in the middle of nowhere I do remember and then we were walking across you know to get to the trains back to London and I felt a tap on my shoulder and I looked up and there was no one there and I heard laughter one of the teenage boys has lent round me tapped me on the shoulder tapped you on the opposite exactly. shoulder exactly it's, it's hilarious and then they were laughing and I thought I, I was horrified and so angry and there was a really and just the period. most minor pranks. Yeah. Exactly. The fo- and then they were laughing at me. And if they'd all been run over by a train at that point, I could have coped with it. <laughs> and it wasn't. It wasn't like I'd. I hadn't got any expectation of being friends with them. I'd seen them. I wasn't sort of thinking one day, you know, we'd all be hanging out together. Yeah, I want to be in that and, gang yeah, exactly. with those people twenty years. <laughs> and I hadn't gone to Ipswich railway station to meet men. I mean, I had no expectation <laughs> of a relationship with them. But as soon as they marked that fact that we were in two different social groups. And they would care so little to have me in their social group that they would laugh at me. Then it became appalling, and it, that was that was the point at yeah, which yeah. it was terrible. And and you and that's actually something you learn. So we had to leave a birthday party uh, that I took my son to with his oldest friend when he was turning six, and all the other children they went to the same school. And my son didn't. And at a certain point at tea, the other boys started marking my my son out as different by laughing at him, very clearly laughing at him. And he didn't understand and was laughing with them because he thought he was in on the joke and they were, they, they, he does it like that. And uh, they were, it was quite unpleasant. And I thought my partner was going to hit someone. He absolutely lost it. I mean, I found it unbearable. Tom was just starting to grind his teeth and going, OK, what we're going to do is leave now. We're going to, all oh, yeah. get on a bus. <laughs> right. Let's go back home and drink gin. It was so stressful. <laughs> and it would have been Come bad on, if, six-year-old. <laughs> it would have been bad if Hector had noticed it. It was somehow even worse that he hadn't and was laughing along with them. It was awful. It was awful. And that's sort of, that, that is, that's part of learning about laughter is exactly that. Yeah. And I think Ooh. when there's a point when you're a baby and a child where it's all good, you know what, you will laugh along well, you'll, you'll laugh and it's all pretty genuine and you kind of assume everybody's laughter is genuine. You learn that it's got this much more complex thing as part of essentially growing up. Um, so is now a good time to maybe talk about nervous laughter and yes. where that fits in? Yeah. Because that feels like it's a... Yeah. It, 
it's a natural. It's now a good time because it, if it's not, <laughs> not fine. <laughs> because, because that feels like again that sort of nervous laughter is an attempt and yeah. sort of a failed attempt to fit in with the group. I think it is, and if you if you look at one of the other main things we do with laughter in in the wild, so sort of nobody teaches you to do this. If you there's some really interesting studies coming out of um, Robert Levinson's lab in the US where he takes couples and he he's been doing this longitudinal study with the community in in, in, Cal- in California for I mean, decades gets people into the lab he wires them up to a polygraph so you can see their heart rate change and their their galvanic skin response you know how much they're sweating and he literally sits them down and makes them talk about something really uncomfortable so he'll say tell me something that your wife does that irritates you sir and right in front of her while she's in the room while she's there and you know that kind of feeling you just <laughs> run that one through your head oh my god you know that unpleasant feeling you can physically see that happening on the polygraph you see people become more stressed what he finds is the couples who deal with that stress with what he calls positive affect, but he means laughter, <laughs> mostly laughter, they become less stressed immediately, but they also stay together for longer and they're happier. So, And it only works if they both do it. So if, one, if they're both laughing, and he's got really lovely videos of these whole couples going, no, it's really irritating, actually. But they're laughing, and he's all kind of being dealt with that way. Well, if one person's going, oh, yeah, that is funny, and the first person's going, no, actually, it's quite a serious problem, and I wish you wouldn't do it. <laughs> it doesn't work. They both stay stressed. And this seems to suggest that one of the things you can do, certainly in intimate relationships, and I don't think that that's limited to romantic relationships. I think that's, you know social interactions with people you've got some level of kind of emotional connection to you can use laughter to actually regulate the emotions of everybody such that you all feel better but you all have to be in on it it's got to you know it only works if you all do it and I think one of the things that happens with nervous laughter is that somebody trying to do that and no one else joins in if everyone else joined in it wouldn't be nervous laughter anymore and they'd be okay and they're trying to do it and they're not for whatever reason other people aren't in on the Thing. And that could be all sorts of things. They're maybe not feeling affiliative. They're not, well, I don't know, you, you, know, you dropped it, you deal with it, you know. Um, right. Don't try and implicate me in this. being rejected yeah. in an attempt. Did you see that, uh, the, the last episode, I think, of Game of Thrones? There's, uh, there's just a moment in it. Without spoilers. It, it, does, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but but uh, Sam, who's the kind of um, Toby's sort of jolly one who's been protecting uh, this woman and the baby, yeah. Rages, they've arrived and he's going to, they've arrived at this library and he gives. Uh, the guy at the reception of the library, this letter that says he's going to be the new maester or whatever. But there's this moment, and it's just... He, he, he reaches the thing out, reaches out the letter, and the guy doesn't reach out to take it. Yeah. The guy just hold, holds his hand out close to his own body. And it's this horrible social moment yeah. of domination where yeah. in order to give in the... You either would have to kick up a massive fuss, which he doesn't have the status to do, yeah. or he just has to... It, 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 it yeah. lasts an uncomfortable amount of time. It's a really, I thought it was a really nice piece of television. Yeah. He has to just reach all the way over the desk and hand him yeah. this piece of paper. But there's also... Um, you off, Things which were embarrassing at the time... Can often become with that with that space with that distance that comfort of space can then become funny later. Like I, yeah. you can barely laugh talking about something that was mortifying a year ago when it actually happened, and yeah. now now you can relay that situation. Go, oh, I, yeah, and, and it was in front of everyone. It was in front of yeah. everyone. Absolutely, yeah. 
And actually, I think it's quite, and I think it still has that power to kind of make the emotion around it feel better. So I deliberately tell that story about the teenage boys, which at the time was awful. It was horrible at the time. Right. And I deliberately turned it into a funny story because then I can, I win over it. Do you yes. know? Yes. I, yeah. I, I yeah. feel yeah. better about it. I'm when you're then talking about like, if they all went under a train, which is yeah. a ludicrous thought. <laughs> yeah. like, you're sort of wishing death upon five <laughs> relatively innocent humans. Yeah, just, Not no, innocent, no. deserving. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of thought for people who go into comedy do it in a way to sort of control the laughter. Yeah. Um, yeah. The laughter that would happen around them whether <laughs> yeah. or not yeah. they wanted it. <laughs> I'm on stage now. Yeah. Now, now I say when it happens. Yeah. Now I, now I'm in charge of when it does or doesn't occur. But one of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you've come across it. There's the whole world of people that get into laughter yoga, and it's, it's, it's. I think we, we passed really, a tenth yeah. of it in Glastonbury yeah, yeah. going through the... I, I mean, I, my, could have been nitrous oxide. <laughs> I, I, would, I mean, it, it, some people really like it, you know. So, but the really interesting thing is that people get into it and then they immediately become therapists. Oh, right, OK. So everybody is kind of... Cause, because the, you get that sort of... You're controlling the laughter. You're so, still without any so of the yoga skill just, just stand up. Yeah. <laughs> well, laughter yoga, just to be clear for people who haven't... And I, 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 you, you know more about this than I do. I believe it's sort of... You get together, you're led by a, by a teacher. Yeah. And they get you to start forcing fake laughter. Yeah. As a group. And slowly it's sort of because of... Because of the communal effect and because of just yeah. the overwhelming effect, it sort of becomes real laughter yeah. after a certain amount of time. Yeah, they use the phrase "fake it till you make it," and it does. I mean, because laughter primes laughter; it's right. incredibly contagious behaviour. And again, <coughs> going back to all the stuff you were saying about audiences, laughter will move around a room. And I've heard people say that it's much easier to play a bigger space than a small space because laughter that might, has got less space to go in a small room. Definitely. To an extent, to an yeah. extent, that's true. It's certainly much <coughs> easier to play to a bigger, to more people. Because also you have that thing of if there's if there's five hundred people and a quarter of them laugh, that's a lot of laughter noise. Yeah. Uh, whereas the equivalent for fifty people is yeah. not many people laughing. Yeah. But there is a there's a limit to that where on occasion I've got to play relatively big theatres, and and in fact some theatres that really lack intimacy because of how big they are. Yeah. And in those ones, it your timing changes because unlike a club like the Comedy Store where there's 400 people there, but they're packed into a really tight space, so you get yeah. this whip crack of laugh. Yeah, um, so you can see them on as well. It's, yeah, it's they're also spread out in such a way that they, even the people right at the back, you can see a face, you can make eye yeah. contact. But some of those, like on, on occasion when I played like a big, wide theatre with more than a couple of thousand people in it, and the laughter kind of happens in a wave. Uh, yeah, you can actually feel. You you have to wait a bit because the laughter sort of spreads to the back of the room and back, or from one side of the room to the other, uh, or it, it sort of goes in these little waves and comes back, and you you have to space your jokes out more, yeah, because you have to wait for that yeah. process to yeah. to play yeah. out. And you can, I've seen people. There was some clip I saw of. Um, oh, I'm going to really spoil this. I'm not going to remember his surname. Sean Locke. Yes. Do you think about wearing a cummerbund? And he's essentially just <laughs> every sort of, just like indicating cummerbund, and the audience laughs, and he walks around and does cummerbund again. And it's just a very interesting example of somebody like playing out the laugh. He's doing almost nothing, just letting it keep moving around the room. It's right. lovely. And it's, he's got, yeah, he's almost, I mean, Sean's a superlative comedian, but, and, uh, but at, by that point, he's almost playing this sizable audience like yeah, an instrument. Exactly, exactly. It's like, it's res- like it, in the same way an instrument, reson- you tap it or pluck it in a certain place and it resonates. Yeah. 
he's almost sort of poking different bits of the crowd and letting yeah. that laughter resonate around. But you're all doing that all the time. I think there's, you know, it's just, it's that. this is why, you know, I suppose this is a, this is an unashamed plea to let somebody let me get, <laughs> go at their audience. But I'd love to know how that's spreading. How is that moving? How bet, are you controlling it? I bet that is very studyable. I, I, again, again, going back with the technology to do that, which would have been re- very expensive five years ago, is now very obtainable. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I bet that we really noticed. I, I just come off a, a tour of kind of a hundred dates, and I was supporting Dave Gorman, and there's, there's really lovely audiences and great venues. And some of the venues, you immediately notice, oh, this isn't as good. And, and it's it's amazing how long it takes you to learn that when you're on stage and there's nobody in the audience, you look at this. This is really cool. Look at all these little alcoves they've got. Yeah. And then afterwards, you go, those fucking alcoves. Yeah. They section people off into a yeah. little group and they were yeah. they could never have the same level as good time yes no of just an old theater with them all and the stalls just packed in yeah yeah some of those sort of great matcham theaters yeah, that, um, yeah which are fantastic uh yeah and oh like, like the Le- i think the least variety is one of his but just uh where it's also very st- a very steep rake so it packs a lot of people in but they're they all feel very close to you and very close to each other yeah yeah uh, and they're just brilliant to play yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, Especially yeah. if there's a king in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, so this, this is the thing that really occurred to me. Um, Jesse Eisenberg was in one of them. That was weird. Oh, really? Yeah, because people look, you know. But um, look, look, I, look, the look. thing that I was th- sorry thinking of was the the classic. I can't even think of an exact uh, example, but we've all seen it a hundred times of that thing where someone says a thing. That probably isn't socially acceptable. Yeah. And everyone looks at the king, and there's the tense moment, and then the king goes, ah, ha, 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 and then all the tension yeah. d- dissolves. Yeah. Or in or the modern equivalent, it like looks at the Asian person or the woman who's next to them, or whoever is re- like referenced in the joke to check it's okay. Um, well, again, again, that sort of that comes down to that sort of social inclusion or exclusion. Is the joke? So, yeah. Are they in on the joke or are they outside yeah. of the joke? Or are they forced to laugh along with the joke even though they're not in on the joke? Yeah. To avoid that social unpleasantness or awkwardness. Yeah. It's very nuanced. It's a very... We tend to think, as I say, like, so all the psychology studies indicate are, if you ask people, they've got a very kind of, you know, straightforward, boilerplate, simple thing. I laugh at stuff that's funny. This is the stuff that I find that's funny. But it's much more complex than that. Even in an environment where, in theory, what you're laughing at is something that's funny, all yeah. this other stuff's still feeding in. So somebody did a study where they took um, jokes, and they just jokes, and they just printed them out, and they said, this has been told by Vicky Gervais, or this has been told by Miranda Hart, or this has been told by someone who's famous but not a comedian, so Jamie Oliver, or you know Kate Moss. And people consistently rate jokes as funnier if they think they've been told by someone who is known to them as a comedian. Yeah. And that's like a whole kind of thing about kind of... The role, and you, you've got that role, like you know, like I suppose we've always done this through history, going you know, jesters and yeah. fools and clowns. There's something about kind of well, I, I will give you that role, so now you're in it. And I guess then sometimes you know, the money, lots of other stuff comes with it. But there's a there's a very interesting permission. Like I, I expect you to, and I allow you to well, that, do this. Then that again goes down to as comics, we know that the first um, the first minute or so you're on stage, right? Even less, the first. Of th- 15 to 20 seconds you're on stage yeah. yeah, really makes a difference to how the rest of the set will go because yeah. that sort of 
particularly if you're not someone that's already known to them, yeah. that's the point that they are either buying in or not buying into the concept of you as a funny person. Yeah. And then, and depending on how that goes, the the same material with the same delivery will either yeah. go well or not go well. Yeah. You know, we've all experienced yeah. being in the same room on the Friday early show and the Friday late show doing exactly the same jokes and getting wildly different responses yeah. to yeah. people who, again, are drawn from exactly the same population. Maybe they're two hours drunker or more tired, but that's there's really very little difference. <coughs> and yeah. it, it almost no variables, but it's the same stuff. And it, it is that, <coughs> have they bought into it? Have they not bought into it? Yeah. And, and we know from being in groups of funny people... Uh, some of whom are better known than others, then you you might be uh, with a group of five comedians, all of whom know each other very well, and we all maybe know that one or two of them are really, really, really funny off stage, but the other one has just been on telly, yeah. and so to someone outside that group, the one who's just been on telly is just automatically funnier than the others yeah. until some time has passed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But then also when when you just said like it's either laughter or not laughter particularly with more contentious material, I th- will often talk as comics about getting the wrong type of laugh from an audience. Yeah. And that's right. something you've, you're sort of very conscious of. If you, if you are someone who, particularly if you are someone who makes a point of doing material that is uh, more contentious or more on the edge, there's been times that friends of mine have dropped certain jokes or not done certain jokes on certain nights because they're like, this might get a laugh, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah. This might get the wrong type of laugh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, like they're getting they're getting it, but they're not getting it. And they I think, think they're validated by something where, in fact, it was yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that is it's like it's the wrong type of validation, or yeah. they're buying into the wrong side of this group. They're buying onto the buying into the, the they're buying into the wrong bit of that divide. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's um, oh goodness, it's just like endlessly complex. But as I say, it, this is what I mean about the kind of. Um, the amount of nuance involved in laughter. So you could be laughing simply because you agree. You can be laughing because right. you recognise something. You know, and that's in conversation as well as in comedy environment. But I think a lot of it moves over into comedy. So my, I know there's a whole world where people theorise about what makes stuff funny. Right. But I think even that has to acknowledge that this kind of... Well, I'm feeling, yeah, I'm, I'm laughing because I agree they are really stupid, aren't they? You know, no, 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 that's not what I meant. You know, but that, you, you, because people are free to kind of come up with their own interpretation and feel sometimes, as you say, completely incorrectly validated by something, yeah. it's, their laughter can still be happening. And at one level, yeah, that's all laughter. But the, the actual meaning behind it can be entirely different. Yeah, five um, different people in the same audience could laugh at the same joke for completely different reasons. And some of them could be getting it the way you intended and some could yeah. be getting a different thing from it. And some people could just be laughing because the two people on either side of them are laughing yeah. and they don't really get it but they're just laughing along yeah yeah and, and like Sophie said like from the beginning when people tell you why they're laughing that may or may not be why they're laughing because yeah. they, they, they're perhaps not the best person to analyze yeah which is why for comics the word timing is just this i'm going to say he's got very good timing I mean, she's got wonderful timing as, as, as though that is the thing yeah. that most tickles you yeah no, exactly. Sort of... <laughs> I think they just. I think maybe what they mean is they absolutely played me like a fish upon a line. You know, I was yeah. completely expertly yeah. but then, drawn what, in. By but then was it? I think it was in Steve Martin's book, which is great in general. Just uh, Born Standing Up, mm. which is a an amazing book, just about both about his life, but also his his analysis of comedy because he then took a very interesting, odd approach to 
how he decided to make people laugh. Yeah. But he described, and I can't remember the name of the comic, but it was an old school comic on The Tonight Show. And he talks about him, how this comic was slap his belly on every punchline. And there was one line where he did the action, but it wasn't a joke, and the audience still laughed. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just because they got trained into this rhythm of that, yeah. when this movement happens, this is the funny thing, but it wasn't a joke. And that's what then set yeah. him on that path of trying to work out if you can make people laugh without doing a punchline. And if you just keep setting up that pressure of a setup but never release it, when yeah. will that release happen? Yeah. Um, I met... Um... Oh, no, I want to really make this useless by not, uh, not remembering his name. He's somebody who's done a great deal of stand-up, like the alternative comedy scene. So, kind of, you know, a, a slightly older generation. And he was saying that he'd, um, he'd never done telly or anything. Very, very right. good comedian. But he, um, he, he could, when he got an audience laughing, he would tell things that had the shape and structure of a joke, but which weren't jokes. And they'll laugh the first time. They'll laugh the second time. Do it a third time. And they're like, no, go back. We want jokes now. We've been, yeah, you know, yeah. we've, we've been prepared to go with you this far. You know, it's it's much more nuanced. And I think even the audiences who who are there, it's they are doing something more complex than they realise they're doing. You know, you, we we kind of go out saying, well, that was just hilarious. And in fact, you've been engaged in a really weird sort of interaction where you hopefully didn't say anything, but you weren't just emitting stuff. You were engaging in really quite a complex way. Sophie, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and your various things? Um, well, I did a TED talk last year, which is available <laughs> on the TED website. Do and, it. Uh, and um, you can also find us on Twitter. So if you look at, at Sophie Scott on Twitter, I tend to post links to a lot of our laughter papers. And that's probably the best way to keep up to date with stuff we're doing. Brilliant. Plus, you have done stand-up. That's the thing. The first time we ever met, yes, I was comparing yes. Bright Club and you yes. were doing stand-up. yes. <laughs> Was that uh, was as a, a sort of experiment to see it from the other side? Or? Well, I originally got into it entirely. I was They were doing it at UCL and they um, they asked for some like input about laughter. And then one of my senior male colleagues, a few, you know, because I thought, why would anyone do that? I'm not doing that. One of my senior <laughs> male colleagues said, have you done Bright Club, Sophie? I did it. I was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> you bastards. <laughs> like, you right, bastards. You haven't <laughs> asked me, you bastards. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I'll totally do that. And then the next thing, I was locked in a toilet. You know, what you know what did I say this? Um, and in fact, all I thought afterwards was, I've got to do more. I've, I need to know more about this because it gave me a whole different insight into what was happening with laughter. All I got all this stuff I've learned about audience laughter has primarily come from paying more attention to comedians, working right. with comedians with backbats, but also from having the chance to do it on stage. So all they teach you to do Bright Club is don't how to hold the microphone, yeah. what to do with the microphone, right. and don't talk over the laughter, which of course everyone still does, because yeah. uh, you know where you can learn that. Bright, Bright, Club, to be, uh, Bright Club is, sort of, is a club that specifically pairs sort of comedians and scientists and yeah. academics. various yeah. academics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it everywhere now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so... Uh, TED Talk, so- Sophie Scott, at yep. Sophie Scott, <laughs> at Nick Doody, yep. and uh, at Matt Kirshen, at Andy T. Wood, at Jesse Case, also listen to Jesse vs. Cancer, uh, and uh, at Probably Science, and we'll be back with a normal episode soon, uh, with the whole gang back together, but um, any questions, comments, clarifications, you can go to probablyscience at gmail.com, or just visit probablyscience.com, uh, there's also the donate button there, I don't have access to who's donated this week, because I don't have my computer, I'm on the road. 
Uh, I hope the audio quality is alright. We're using both a phone and a Zoom recorder. And, <laughs> and another phone. And another phone. We've got lots of backups here, but I know it's going to be slightly lower quality than we've got the whole lot together. Do we have, like, 200 seconds to quickly describe the office we're in, just so the people <laughs> listening know? I, I find it so yes. awesome. Not, not just the yeah, books I'm sort of, that are up there. I'm staring at a wall. You're, you've got the yeah, better view of all the, the stuff. There's books. There's all sorts of, uh, sort of Lego. Uh, there's a Doctor Who... Um, Sonic screwdriver. There's a lot uh, of various egg timers. Right yeah. in front of me, there is a bowl of tiny um, <laughs> individual Tic Tacs. 3.9 gram packets of Tic Tacs, which I now in, I just imagine there was a series of children with electrodes attached to them, <laughs> either either to reward or positively prime things. There's so much. This has been an academic's office for quite a while. Yeah. It's <laughs> too long. Just too long. Too there long. are two hourglasses on this table alone. Yeah, I got very interested in um, representations of time, and then it kind of slightly got away from me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's three hourglasses. There's three hourglasses. Also, the the, the recorder is balanced on another hourglass. And this is a magnetic one. Four. So if you... Magnetic hourglass. So you can... Again, born for radio... So oh, this is this is a, this an hourglass made of iron filings that then lands on a magnet and so sticks up in an interesting way. Yeah, it's just so pleasing. It is that very is pleasing. extremely pleasing. Yeah. That's next to a tiny cushion that has moomins <laughs> on it, but drawn in a sort of Japanese style. <laughs> yes. There's a lot. Of I'm stuff. not proud. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, uh, Nick, thank Sorry you for. That. No, I'm glad you did. <laughs> Nick, thank you for guest uh, co-hosting, and and Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, yeah, I really so enjoyed that. Thank you.